Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of When Anxious Kids Grow Up, Where Do They Go? I am your host, Natalie Nat or Natalie Ryan, if you prefer my screen name. Um, And today, I have a bit of a better direction of where we're going in terms of like actual content. <laughs> Yesterday, um, the podcast was essentially just me ranting. It was me rambling. It was me me just hanging out trying to get a grasp of things. And a lot of it was, um, think about it as like like the the background episodes of a show, like the, the uh, think of it as the prequel to my life. Like you now know all of my backstory and now we can get into the real like flesh and meat of what's happening today in my life. So. Today's episode, I really wanted to focus on, well, you know, having anxiety as the first thing, but also just in general, hyperfixations and also um, coping mechanisms for anxiety. Typically those that go through, that, that are like involved with art, ones that that deal with something creative, because I generally feel, and many others are, um, who, who experience very intense emotions and uh, very intense mental health issues can can very much gravitate towards art in a way that that is almost inexplainable to people who don't experience those things. It's a very personal subject to me, and it's um it's definitely a very big part of my gap year this year. So my gap year is really focused on like helping me figure out what I want to do in college, right? And for the longest time, due to me being anxious about you know getting a job when I'm older, I was really hesitant about committing to doing a major that I actually enjoyed like theater or music because yes I am I am very smart in in things like math and science like I had I I took like all advanced courses and like I did special like NASA camps where I essentially had to study aerospace physics and like help plan a manned mission to Mars with a group of other teens who spent their summer doing the same thing so I theoretically could make a living and I could be, I could theoretically be really happy doing that, but it's never going to be fulfilling in the same way that music is. And that's been something that's very daunting to me. The fact that I would need to essentially pick between these two is my main focus. And most people look at it and they go, oh, you should, you should pick the easy, well, not easy money, but the more assured money. You should pick the science. You should pick the things that, that'll actually possibly provide you a stable career like engineering. And for a long time, I did want to be a mechanical engineer. And that was, that was one of my many hyperfixations was like, ooh, let's do all the calculus I can. And then I realized that it was, it was horrendous and I despised it and I never wanted to do it again. <laughs> but um, in terms of everything else, like music has always been a very integral part of my life. So much so that I'm planning on, on putting my entire career around it. It's, it's so so meaningful to me in a way that I can barely describe in words, which makes doing a podcast incredibly difficult. Um, and I think the most beautiful thing is that people who who experience a lot of trauma or adversity in life also have these sorts of, of love affairs with cer- certain types of art. Some of the best artists I've ever seen in my life, like my friends who are incredible artists, go through incredibly depressive episodes where they can barely get out of bed, but when they do, they make things that are beautiful. And I will always hold a very special love for that and a very special respect for that. I think that obviously you don't need to suffer to make art. And I think that that gets me very annoyed when people think that you need to have this tragic backstory to be an artist. You don't. If you want to make art, just go make art. That's the easiest thing there is to it. Just go, just go do it. Go live your life. We support that here. But I think that people who 
harbor a lot of pain and people who, who don't know how to process that pain are definitely attracted to the idea of being an artist. You're, you're getting paid for showing the world your emotions and seeing how they respond to them. And that can be a very scary profession, especially if you're in performing arts like theater or like live performing of music. That can be terrifying because if you, I think the most sensitive people are drawn to art. So if you have a performance that isn't well received, a lot of the time you don't think, oh, that audience may just not have been feeling the show as a, as a, as a whole being. And you look at that and you think, oh, they don't like me, I have to hate myself. And when I was an actor earlier, like earlier on in my acting career, that is exactly what happened. So I, I despised everything about performances that I gave that were anything less than a standing ovation. So I think that um, people who are anxious, a lot of kids who, are, who grow up with anxiety or who, who are academically gifted early on, but then later almost feel like they were undeserving of that recognition. Once everyone else catches up to you, it can change your perspective a lot. I mean, when you're in the fourth grade and reading at a college level, you are you are the talk of every family gathering. You you are you are given this special sort of award for just being you and that award is just the recognition and praise of others. People telling you you have a bright future, people telling you that you will be able to do anything. And then you get to college and everyone can read on a college reading level. So where's your conversation starter? Where's where's your study skills? If you never had to study, how do you learn how to learn, especially when it's supposed to be self-motivated teaching? I think that that is the biggest disservice to gifted kids is telling them they're special, never giving them the tools to succeed, and then asking why they're depressed when they're suddenly no longer this special, special little person that they were told they would be. When you grow up believing that you are destined for greatness, you you almost become disappointed with yourself when you're not as great. And that's, that's a very painful, painful reality. I think the, the most damaging thing um, about growing up with a mental illness is that you, you forever feel slightly off from everyone else. Um, and sometimes it's not explained in ways that actually make sense to you. Like when I was, when I was growing up, um, I would have panic attacks in class in, in first and second grade. And I, sometimes I would just burst out into tears. Sometimes I would just, I, I would just panic. And I don't fully, those memories are kind of hazy because they're all kind of painted with that brush of trauma. And it, it was due to the hospital and all the experiences that I talked about last episode. Um, but the thing is, is that I never understood that other people don't feel like that. I never understood that other people don't just have panic attacks. Not everyone is always feeling this anxious. And then when I grew up and I heard adults talking about, oh, I'm, I'm 30, whatever. And I just had my first panic attack. I was like, whoa, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I'm an expert at this stuff. And you, you just had your first one. Okay. That's like a regular Tuesday night for me. I don't, I don't know. And I always feel like those people have, I don't want to say advantage, because um, I don't really think it's an advantage, but it is, it is one less thing that they don't have to think about. They don't have to worry about. They don't have to, they don't have to hope that they 
They don't have to hope that they'll be considered normal one day. And that is a very depressing statement. Um, especially if you can relate to it, then, you know, I'm right here with you. We're in this together, homie. But, um, it is definitely a very painful reality that there will always be people who, who are just a bit mentally clearer, who have fewer issues to deal with, who have, who have less to fight against in their own heads. And I think that as I've gotten older and I've become more aware of my anxiety and what it does to me. First of all, it makes me a very reflective person. Like I, <laughs> I don't even know if I mean to be or if it's just the overthinking that causes me to analyze what I'm doing. Um, but either way, people tell me I'm very pensive and I think that's a good thing. So I'm gonna roll with it. And I think that anxiety and other mental health issues just don't get the recognition they deserve. And I know I sound like a broken record because everyone's like, oh, break the stigma, break the stigma. But you can only just say break the stigma so many times before you actually have to start doing work to combat the stigma. And I know that, that I know that it's so much easier said than done because it's it's a lot of work that goes on with how people interpret mental health in, in the lens of a culture, in the context of a community. That is very difficult to explain and elaborate on because everyone has a different experience with it. And not only that, people grew up with different preconceived notions. I mean, you even look a couple generations ago, you look to my grandparents, that, they came from a time when you weren't supposed to talk about not being okay. Like depression was, obviously it existed because people were definitely depressed, but it wasn't something you talked about. You didn't go to therapy, you didn't get medication. And now, just a couple generations later, I, I work for a nonprofit that focuses on teens mental health. Like what is that shift and how do we how do we use that shift to actually create tangible change because we can talk about breaking the stigma and ending the stigma but at the end of the day there are still going to be people where if you say hey i'm depressed they're not going to take you as seriously as you need to be taken is that disappointing definitely is it reality also definitely and it's especially the reality of growing up with these sorts of fears and anxieties <sighs> Then that brings me to my next point. This is actually a lovely little transition, but um, <laughs> with uh, with anxiety, there's a lot of ways that even if you have therapy as a a younger child or as an adolescent, I didn't have therapy. I never, I didn't ever have therapy. I um, when I got into high school, my my high school counselor was definitely like a therapist to me because I would just be like, "Hey, I'm sad. I'm gonna come in and cry in your office," and she's like, "Great, we will talk about it. We will get through it." Which was lovely, <laughs> because it was uh, it was definitely what I needed at that time. That's what I needed consistently, and it was um, it was actually a very good way for me to kind of learn how to coordinate myself as a person. But something that myself and many other people with anxiety disorders and just in general, like I know there, this is a common um, common trait among people with like ADHD and different things like that. And I feel like it generally is uh, a, something that can really happen among people with, with any sort of, of mental illness or mental health issues and that is the idea of hyperfixations. Now let me t let me elaborate on it a little more because when I talk about hyperfixation for me as an individual people generally think like oh Amy do you have ADHD? I'm like no 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 just just hear me out listen to me it's not <laughs> let me elaborate um but with my anxiety i generally notice that when i'm going through a very very bad episode when i'm anxious about everything when i'm talking more about like 
myself in the grander context of of reality and of life and I, I feel like I'm falling behind my peers due to whatever reason whether it be being stuck inside from quarantine or or needing to combat my anxieties that other people don't generally have um when it gets very bad and I notice that I'm in those states I tend to hyperfixate on things and that hyperfixation can come in the form of making art like for example um there have been times where I'll finish like pieces like drawings or paintings very quickly because it's all I will do for two, three, four hours. It's, and I just sit there and that is the only thing, nothing else in the world will exist to me. Or sometimes I'll be watching a show and it's the only thing I watch for like days on end. And I just sit there and I binge and I get it done. Um, and I definitely become more aware of this and I can regulate it a bit more because when I feel that I'm getting antsy because I've been sitting there hyperfixating on one show and like trying to figure out everything about all the characters and watch all the episodes at once, I, I can say, hey, I need to take a step back. Like I can I can leave and I can come back to this in a couple days or or in a little bit. And I feel like that's general that's generally and genuinely helped me to to mitigate those feelings. But um, some of the hyperfixations I've had have been on very weird things that will not help me in my future careers. Like for for example, when I was like, I don't know, 12, it was middle school, it was a bad time. I had this obsession with learning Danish for like a month and then never again. I learned how to say like, I learned how to say I speak Danish and learned how to talk about food. I learned how to talk about this is a man, this is a woman, this is a child, like very basic stuff. And I still remember that, although it only occupied my my learning, my curriculum, my personal curriculum for like quite literally a month. And even in quarantine, I noticed myself going through these these phases. Like for a while, the only thing I was doing, even on like work calls, like we'd have Zoom calls, um, and as long as I was paying attention and listening, I was fine. But like I would be painting on the call, not necessarily the best thing to do, but it was it was happening because I just physically couldn't like stop myself from doing this and from being aware of it and from from trying to from trying to distract myself in this way i also noticed like in something that's a bit more tangible and if you're watching the live stream of this podcast you'll actually be able to see behind me but all of the um posters in my room i probably have over if i had a rough estimate like i probably have 250 things on my walls and that's not an exaggeration that's a genuine estimate um and when I did that, I completely moved all the furniture in my room, like my bookshelves, my desk, everything moved. And my room is not very big. So I committed for probably, I would say rough estimate, six hours, um, just changing everything in my room for no reason. There was no, there was nothing wrong with the way it was before. I just decided to rip everything off the walls and start again. And that happens probably every nine, nine months to a year, I'll do that. I don't know, I just notice myself going through these things. And I notice myself being defined by whatever phase I'm in. And I think that that, I think that that's been prevalent for a very long time. And I just think that I didn't realize it because it wasn't something talked about. It wasn't talked about like, hey, hyperfixation can just be someone being really passionate about something in the eyes of someone who doesn't quite know the difference between it. And even in even in 
mental health and mental health counseling, it's very, very difficult to like differentiate that sort of thing. Especially me, because I'm in a, I'm in a, a situation with mental health um, and like working in the nonprofit sector where I am still learning and I'm still learning how to be there and be supportive of people and like how to how to help give advice without trying to dictate someone's life and trying to like assume that every single thing they do is tied to the fact that they they are anxious or they are depressed or they are dealing with whatever because that's not a fair assessment to make and generally that can lead to them feeling like unheard in in their own experiences i just know that for me like when i was between the ages of like 10 and 12 people did not like me at all like i was um in elementary school the end of elementary school beginning of middle school like it was really rough because i remember people genuinely disliking me and bullying me and saying horrible horrible things about me because the more that i became myself the less that i the less that i was accepted by everyone else and i always tried to play it off as like oh i didn't care oh i didn't care but it, it did get to me and i found a lot of solace in communities and in in obsessing over something for three weeks and then forgetting about it a little bit and then maybe coming back to it a couple months or a year later that was so comforting to me because it was almost like if i poured every amount of what i was into this there was no way i could feel sad there was no way i could feel lonely because i would have all of these ideas all these thoughts to comfort me um and that, def that definitely happened with my like fandom phase um i jumped from fandom to fan oh my god i'm it was very i'm not gonna say it might have been cringy i can't quite tell and that that hurts me that i don't know <laughs> but it definitely happened um like for a long time i was really into anime and i still love anime i actually have anime posters on my walls back over here which i know you can't see but you can imagine it and half of my wardrobe is still anime shirts but it's not like i am binge watching full metal alchemist brotherhood for six hours out of the day now it's it's different my relationship with it is different um, and I think that that is definitely a sign of growth and a sign of kind of getting better and becoming more aware of, of what you need and what you know won't necessarily help you in the way that you think it will. I, I like to look at it in that sort of positive light, but I, I did go through phases. I went through a homestuck phase. I don't want to talk about that. Um, I went through an anime phase, which mainly consisted of Hitalia. And Hitalia, if you don't know, because people either know it and love it, or they don't know what it is at all, or they absolutely abhor it and its entire existence. But it's an anime where the countries of the world were personified as people. And to me, who watched Eurovision and loved Eurovision, like the, yes, the, the European song contest, and who had an obsession with geography and history, I was like, this is the perfect show for me because I love learning about the countries of the world. And so I definitely use those were like my comfort characters like comfort characters are a meme now But for a long time I was like these this this gives me serotonin. I am so I am at peace with the world because I have one serotonin um, Yeah, and I definitely went through that sort of phase with a full alchemist brotherhood. That was oh, That was a very integral part of my upbringing um or on High School Host Club, I wanted to become Haruhi, and if I wasn't Haruhi, I was going to be Tamaki, and that was just, that was how it was. That was the idea. The idea is that I was going to become a pretty, pretty anime boy. Other than that, what else, what other sorts of obsessions did I go through? Um, I went through 
a little bit of an obsession with Overwatch where like I just I, it was just so comforting to play Junkrat and blow things up. It was just these these elements, these moments where all of my attention was only on that thing. The same thing happened with Creepypasta. Like the Creepypasta characters from like 2014, 16-ish. Like like Jeff the Killer and I don't want to I don't want to remember these things. They make me ugh. They make me hurt on the inside and the outside. But to a kid who feels already alienated from their peers because they know that they're going through an experience that their peers aren't not only not going to relate to, but will probably be pretty judgmental about. And a kid who desperately wants to like examine the lives of characters and, and hope for things that are good in the world, having these, these comfort crutches Having these hyperfixations that are this big community of fans that are all doing the same thing and liking the same thing and, and like happy about the same thing, it feels very comforting. Like the fact that <laughs> the fact that the Hitalia characters had their own theme songs and the fact that there were homestuck versions of every pop song imaginable that still haunt my dreams to this day it just felt more real it felt more legitimized and it felt more like it wasn't just a thing that you liked it was a community that would care about you and would talk to you and like the amount of internet friends that i made during that time because of like bands oh yeah definitely i went through a lot of phases with bands too um because of bands or because of of web comics or because of whatever it just was it was such it was such a nicer place than the world I'd been presented with. And I think that a lot of people who feel like they're not necessarily right or people who, who have um, who have issues like with their self-esteem, with insecurities, I feel like they all kind of turn to this because it, it feels like a home that you don't necessarily have to leave. It's a home that you can choose to be in, that you can choose to interact with. And if you don't like it, you don't have to be there. I think the most recent hyperfixation in my life, and I wouldn't, I mean, this has actually lasted quite a while right now, so I don't know, I don't know, I don't think it's the hyperfixation in the way that everything else is. I've kind of learned that, you know, things in moderation are generally better, <laughs> but um, right now it's definitely like K-pop, um, which I know you can, you talk about it being cringy, whatever. I was a Homestuck, I was a Homestuck fan. Nothing phases me anymore. You can't intimidate me. I've already taken it all. And. The reason that I like it is because a lot of the, the same appeals for Eurovision are here. I mean, it's it's foreign languages, which I have an obsession with linguistics. I love learning new languages. That's why I went through my Danish phase. That's why I tried to learn Danish in a month. And even now I'm trying to learn a couple of languages at the same time because once I became fluent in French, I was just like, you know what? I did it once, I can do it again. So it's it's another language. It's pretty people singing songs about wanting to fall in love. Hello, that excuse me. That's why I had an emo phase because I was like, Gerard Way talking about heartbreak speaks to my little emo heart. There are so many elements of it that I just found solace in and other things. And so I was like, this is great. This is this. I love this. And the people that I've met through it, obviously not all of them because there are some very toxic people but there are some incredible people that i've become friends with because of it and it feels again like there's more of a community about it and i know that not everyone with anxiety has these hyperfixations. i don't want you to think i don't want you to think that this is a common thing 
I am, however, speaking from my experience, for me, this was a big part in helping me cope with my anxiety. And I think that it's important to realize not only the coping mechanisms you have, but the fact that those coping mechanisms will not be the same across the board. It's just, it's just a nice thing to, to think about and to appreciate. And it's also good to look back on it and say like, hey, maybe I should moderate this. Maybe I should like think about how much time I'm spending towards X, Y, and Z so that I, I can make myself happier overall and make sure I'm still taking care of myself, even if I'm not feeling the best. So yeah, that's that's the hyperfixation element of this episode. Um, now I want to talk about music specifically with anxiety because, ooh, girl, do I have some stories for you. Um, I I love music. I love and adore music. And I know I mentioned this earlier, but I, I want to make music. I want to be a music producer. I want to be a performer. I want to sing on stage. I want to dance. I want to do all of it. And you know, maybe maybe this is the gifted kid syndrome in me talking where I'm like, oh, I'm destined for greatness, but I, I think I'm determined enough to not take no for an answer. So take that as you will. But um, with music and anxiety, I genuinely feel my anxiety is so greatly impacted by the music I listen to. Like, you know, the memes where people are like, oh, I listen to sad music to make me sadder. Sometimes I do do that so that I have a good old cry or a good old existential crisis on the floor. Is it healthy? That's no, that's not what I'm saying in the slightest. I actually recommend not doing that um, unless you genuinely have not cried for a long time and you need to let those emotions just go. But personally for me, the, the funniest thing is, the funniest contradiction is that I want to make music so badly, yet um, I'm so anxious to do it that I just don't. I have, I have music equipment downloaded on my PC, and I rarely touch it because I get nervous. I get so nervous about, like, it not being what I want it to be, and it not being good enough, and that's the perfectionist in me talking, but it terrifies me that I have to be so vulnerable as an artist, yet I'm still learning how to become the artist I want to be. I, I definitely think that some of the disadvantages I faced have been because I expect perfection of myself and if things aren't perfect immediately the first time I just don't want to do it and that <laughs> not a healthy mindset I know but um it's definitely the mindset I have because sometimes that's just how life works it's not it's not necessarily good it's not good at all but it's it's definitely something that I have to be aware of with myself and I have to be cognizant of and I think that I think that if I overcome my fears of my music being heard and being poorly received, I think that I will be happy, but I also expect myself to be so good at everything that it's physically painful when I'm not as good as those people I look up to. Like, I can feel it hurt me. Like, some of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard, I've actually... I have a blog, um, and if you, there's a link tree <laughs> where like all of my links are. If you if you find the link tree on one of my many uh, social media applications, you will uh, end up finding everything else. But the the blog that I'm running is also for my gap year, and it's where I have to talk more about. I, I get to write out in sort of a narrative sense, like what I really feel and what I really think, and it's it is definitely. I 
would say it's easier for me emotionally because I can be really emotional in the moment I'm writing and then like walk away from it, but have everything down and have it be more tangible than me just talking or me just live streaming. So I do, I do very much enjoy that. But one of the most important pieces on my blog post uh, is a 2000, 2000 words, 2000 word essay that I wrote about what I would say is arguably my favorite song. I don't like the idea of having a favorite song because I have so many favorite songs that it's not really fair. But this essay means so very much to me. It was, it was so cathartic to sit down and write out why this song made me feel the way it does. And I know that that's the emotion I want to elicit in people. And I know that that is so hard to do and so hard to expect from yourself, especially when you're just starting out. But the craziest thing is that there's such a cognitive dissonance within me where I, I can say to people who are just starting out, I can be like, oh, it's fine. Like you, you're still learning. You're, you're going to get better. But then to me, I don't allow myself to do that. And I know that that makes me unhappy, but what do you do? What do you, what do you realistically do? How do you, you can point out those negative thoughts all the time. And I, I do, but they still show up. And I think that as I've been able to identify them and name them and realize that it is just an insecurity that I think that I have gotten better, better at controlling it, better at looking at it and saying, this way of thinking isn't right. This way of thinking is only hurting you. That doesn't mean I don't feel that way. It just means that that is, is the way it is. I don't, I don't quite know what I want you to take away from this episode. If anything, I, I hope that hearing my struggles and hearing these things can either give you something to reflect on because you realize you're similar or because you realize that you're very different. Um, I hope that what I've talked about has been either a source of comfort or a, a source of realization that sometimes people people can really be going through it without you necessarily knowing um, in that way. And I, I hope that maybe this is something meaningful for those of you who can relate, who hear this, to realize that this isn't abnormal. Like this is just a way that you feel sometimes. Sometimes it's it can be more persistent than other people and that doesn't make it necessarily wrong or bad. I I want you to know that whatever you want to do at least try it because even if it scares you that's good because being scared means you care very deeply about what you're doing. And obviously it may take some time to to pay off or for your life to get to where you think it needs to be. And maybe you'll realize somewhere along the way that there was something else entirely that that made you feel the way you thought your original dream would. And that's what I hope that's what I hope for you in 2021. I hope that you get you get that solace, you get that that love and you get that that drive that you hope for. Cuz honestly, I'm hoping that I get that too for me. <laughs> But I think that it'll be easier to embark on this journey if I openly share that sort of love and affection to as many people as I can. So thank you very much for listening in. If you are one of my college professors who asked to watch this to give me a grade, I hope you liked my incessant rambling. And if you're one of my friends who knows me in real life and hasn't heard my voice in a, in a long while, hi, love you too. 
And if you're one of my friends who I haven't met yet because we talk on the internet, hi, how's it going? <laughs> and if you're a random person, I want you to know that I love you even though I don't know you. And more importantly, there's someone who does know you, who does love you. So thank you very much. Stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, and I will catch you in the next episode.